Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kristen Turner, and today I'm talking to Catherine Preston, author of the first biography of George Frederick Bristow, published by University of Illinois Press in 2020. Bristow has largely been forgotten today, but he was a significant figure in the music scene of 19th century New York City. Born in 1825, Bristow led a professional life that today's musicians would surely recognize. He patched together a living from performing, composing, conducting, teaching, church jobs, and even some business ventures and celebrity endorsements. Preston situates his life within the booming musical economy in New York and his music within the critical and artistic currents of the 19th century. At his death in 1898, he left behind a large body of compositions in every popular genre of the period, including a number of symphonies and Rip Van Winkle, the first grand opera by an American composer. Like just about every 19th century American composer, however, Bristow's music is rarely performed, but perhaps this book will stimulate interest in his work and that of his contemporaries. Thank you for joining me today, Kitty. It's great to talk to you a second time. I've interviewed you before about your amazing opera for the people book. Um, but this is a quite a different project, um, a first biography, I think, for you. So congratulations and welcome to, to uh, New Books and Music. Thank you for having me, Kristen. This is a, this is a delight. Uh, I enjoyed the other interview as well, and I'm looking forward to this one. And yes, this is quite a different project, um, not just because it is a biography as opposed to a cultural history, but because it is very, I mean, it's relatively short compared to the opera for the people book, which is clocks in at about 600 pages. This is, this is much shorter. It fits in a particular series. It's about 200, 200 pages or so. So it's, it's more easily consumable, uh, on, on, you know, on a casual read than, than opera for the people, which is, it takes a while to get through that. So anyway, so yes. And, and the other, the other thing I should mention is that uh, when I first started working on this project, uh, I was having a conversation with, with Laurie Matheson, in Charleston, actually, um, at a, a conference of the Society for American Music, and um, I pointed out to her that the, the, the wonderful series, uh, American Composer series, that University of Illinois Press does, at the time had I think 12, uh, 12 uh, imprints, twelve books, 
one of which was about an American composer of the 19th century. And I pointed out that that is a serious um, lacking in terms of coverage of, of musical history of the 19th century, and that maybe George Bristow would be a good candidate. And I volunteered at that point to to write a biography of George Bristow because I had actually uh, several years before uh, published an edition of his Second Symphony, which is part of the Music of the United States series. Um, and I wrote a large introduction, I think a hundred page introduction about uh, about that symphony, about symphonic music in 19th century America and about George Bristow, because at that time there was nothing in the historiography that could put this, put this symphony in context. So, um, so when I, when I uh, spoke with, with Laurie about this, I thought, well, he's not the most interesting guy, you know, uh, he, if you look at the history books, he's, he's portrayed as this kind of stodgy, oh, reactionary conservative um, composer and we didn't know much about him in terms of his life he so that image coupled with the the, the few um, um, visual images of him kind of reinforced this idea that he was kind of boring um, so I was doing this a little bit reluctantly um, but then I started reading the the journals the music journals of the 19th century and newspaper and so forth. I had a, a whole year as a, uh, on sabbatical my last year at the College of William and Mary before I retired. And, and I spent that year just doing additional research beyond what I had used for the, for the, for the introduction to the symphony. And I discovered that this guy was considered by his colleagues to be the most important American classical composer in the 1860s, 70s, and into the 80s. And I thought, whoa, we don't know anything about this man. We know a little bit about him in the history books, but the, the portrayal is all wrong. He actually comes across as a very interesting, kind, supportive, um, proselytizing for American music, but also proselytizing for music as, a, uh, as, a, as, a, as a, an important part of American life. Um, generous, and actually with a droll sense of humor, a guy who is actually somebody I think I would have liked to know. Um, which is entirely different than the kind of image that I had uh, I had learned about him as a student and as a, as a scholar working on 19th century music. So once I got into the project, I was quite excited about it. And I think it shows in, in, in my enthusiasm in the writing. I hope so anyway. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it does show through. And actually, you've answered some of my first questions uh, that I already had. But um, so perhaps to pick up on your point about how Bristow has this reputation of being kind of a stick in the mud and stuff, I think uh, maybe we can start with the one period or one aspect of his life that if you know about 19th century American music, you've probably heard of Bristow. And that is he was involved in this big conversation uh, in 1854 about American music versus and, and the lack of support of American music uh, by, by American um, institutions in New York, uh, institutions of music, of course. Can you and and can you talk a little bit about that particular moment and um, how that has affected um, our our idea of Bristow, and then how you think that might have been um, incorrect? I guess this is, is your point. Well, okay, that's a big that's a big question. That's a big question. I know. We'll just start with the big one. It's <laughs> the most important. Uh, probably the one most important question about Bristow because it's the only part of Bristow that anybody knows about. And I'm talking about Americanist music historians who know about it. Most music historians don't, don't know anything about American music, period, 
much less uh, something in the 19th century. Um, in 1853, let's see, how much detail do I want to go into? In 1853, late 1853, a, uh, a, a renowned virtuoso conductor named Louis Julien, who was working in London as part of the proms concerts, what became the proms concerts, pop music concerts, um, uh, came to the United States with a group of about 27 or 28 musicians, many of whom were the star virtuosi of Europe. And he was able to lure these people over because he paid well. All right, so he came to the United States in, 18, in, in, in August, to New York in August, in August uh, 1853, um, and set about doing uh, a concert, one concert every day for weeks uh, in New York City, attracting lots of people. Uh, he, he, he lured a, a number of the New York Philharmonic Society um, uh, uh, orchestra musicians into his orchestra. So he had an orchestra of 100 musicians and it blew the Philharmonic Society of New York out of the water. Okay, so that's kind of the background. He also started to commission works by American composers who were living in New York. The two most prominent of them were, were, were um, William Henry Fry a Philadelphia composer who now is living in New York. He was a journalist as well, uh, worked for the New York Tribune, and George Bristow, who at the time was 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 a rising star in New York. Okay, so he uh, uh, Bristow wrote Symphony Number no. Two, which is which is subtitled the Julian Symphony, um, and uh, and Fry wrote a number of of pieces, including the Santa Claus Symphony and a lot of overtures and so forth. And and Julian actually performed them. Okay, now the background to that is that for about 10 years before that, um, American composers, especially in New York, had been kind of fighting with the Philharmonic Society, which was founded in 1842. It, at the time, was the only standing orchestra in America. Um, because over the years of the 1840s, the, um, the orchestra composition had been changed because of the influx of a lot of German musicians from revolutionary Germany, who were coming to this country to avoid all what was going on in Germany. And they brought with them their love of German music. And so increasingly over the 1840s, um, the Philharmonic Society of New York performed more and more European music to the exclusion of anything that was being written in the United States. Now, most composers in the United States realized that, of course, we are part of the we're part of the Western European cultural sphere. So we need to learn this music. We need we want to listen to Beethoven. We want to listen to Mendelssohn and Spohr and so forth. But do we have to listen to all these other third-rate composers like Kalivoda and and Marschner and so forth? I don't want to insult any Kalivoda or Marschner scholars, but you know uh, the, the idea was we can write music that is not that maybe is not, you know, the best, but it is, we're learning and we're trying to create a musical culture. And so, so there were, would there be letters to the editor in like the, the message bird or the New York musical journal or, or editorials by, by in musical journals about what about, you know, the, the what is one, th one thing that is part of the charter of the Philharmonic Society to promote creation of music in, in New York. Okay. So here comes Julianne into the middle of this kind of, not so happy contretemps between uh, composers and musicians and the Philharmonic Society, of which George Bristow is a charter member, 
um, and a very important member. Um, and and the fact that that um, that Julianne was actually performing these pieces um, made the American composers go, "Oh, maybe my music is okay. Maybe it's 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 worthy of composing. Maybe what we're hearing from the Philharmonic Society." which is, well, when your music is good enough, we'll play it. Um, maybe they're wrong, all right? And at the same time, we have somebody like Fry, who had just spent the previous six years as a correspondent to the Tribune in Paris, listening to all sorts of music. So he knew what the general standard of orchestral music was in Western Europe. And so he's coming back. He had come, come back just the previous year. And he's going, excuse me, this, uh, you know, this is a lot of malarkey that you're telling us our music isn't good enough. So in, uh, in, in 1853, uh, Julianne is performing pieces. And one of the pieces that he performs is uh, one of the movements from, well, movements from, from, uh, from Bristow's first symphony and a movement from the, the symphony that he, he had, uh, had commissioned, the, the, the second symphony. And he performed and he programmed some pieces by Fry, including something called the Santa Claus Symphony. And the Santa Claus Symphony is basically a big tone poem. And he put, he played it on Christmas Eve, right? The concert was on Christmas Eve, so perfectly legitimate time. Well, one of the one of the critics, Richard Storrs Willis, wrote a review of of that concert in which he's he's praising Bristow's Symphony, and he dismisses. The Christmas Symphony. He says, "Our good friend um, uh, William Fry, he just wrote this trifle of a piece, and he's calling it a symphony. You know, symphony symphonies are like four movements long. And the first movement is he doesn't say sonata allegro because the term hadn't been invented, but you know, we have like exposition. And so anyway, and 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 so so this was really a, a smackdown for William Henry Fry." And Fry went ballistic, and he's a journalist. And he wrote to uh, to uh, Richard Storrs Willis a letter to the editor, long. I mean, Fry, Fry was was verbose, um, and he wrote a letter saying, "Excuse me, it is the responsibility of American critics to support American uh, composers, and the responsibility of the Philharmonic Society." And they went back and forth a couple times with rebuttals and more letters and rebuttals. And and, and meanwhile, Bristow's on the side. And then, and then um, um, uh, Willis makes a fatal mistake, which is to, um, uh, to bring in the New York Philharmonic Society. Because Fry had said something like, you know, a good example of our lack of support is the Philharmonic Society and their programs and the lack of support for American composers. And Willis, who tended to lecture, and he was still lecturing American composers, and, and, and he said, well, your good friend, Bristow, and he is on the board of the Philharmonic Society. And if this was, in fact, true, he would say something. At which point, Bristow, who took this as kind of throwing down the gauntlet, logged on in a 20th or 19th century way and wrote a letter. And he said, excuse me, my dear Mr. Willis, but you are wrong. And Mr. Fry is completely right. And he went on about the German hegemony and, you know, the cotton, you know, the, the, the fact that the Germans are a clique and, and so on and so forth. And this goes back and forth for a number of uh, times. And the Philharmonic Society 
weighs in and they say, oh, we can give a whole list of all the American composers, American compositions we've performed over the last 10 years, which consisted of about 10, and two of them were by Bristow, uh, and the other ones were by were by visiting composers from Europe. They weren't Americans and so forth. So it was just utter nonsense. Anyway, it, it, this kind of blew up into what is called by some scholars as the musical battle of the century. And so, and, and Bristow, who is staunchly defending American composers, got this reputation as being this, um, this reactionary against what the New York Philharmonic Society was doing. And it then colored his, his reputation for the rest of, you know, for, until today. Um, because that's all people know about George Bristow. Now, one thing that is that I, I think I, I change in this book is the fact that um, if you if you look at information on Bristow in, in biographical dictionaries or in histories of American music, you will see people saying, "Well, Bristow. I mean, he talked a good talk, but his music he wrote. You know, he wrote classical style absolute music. His, his Second Symphony is four movements, Sonata Allegro." theme of variations, it's old-fashioned, early romantic period music. So who's he lecturing us about creating an American musical style? But in reality, if you look at his music, he wrote quite a few pieces that are very much overtly Americanist in orientation and nationalist in orientation, including Riff Van Winkle, which was, uh, as you mentioned, is an important opera. Um, He wrote uh, several of his symphonies, uh, one called The Acadian, which is about Pioneers going west and has an Indianist uh, movement. He wrote the Niagara Symphony. He wrote an ode called uh, the, the Grand Republic, and so forth. So, so, um, so his music reflects his his uh, belief that American composers should be should be supported. And American music should be supported. That's a very long answer. I'm sorry. No, no, that's exactly what I hoped you'd say because you know people aren't going to listeners might not know all of that. So that's that's good that you gave all that background. And and actually, um, do you think? So I guess the upshot of that was even though they had all these this uh, discussion about it. German music really did dominate, particularly in instrumental music, for a long time. I mean, it wasn't like suddenly they were all like, oh, we need to support American composers. That is not what happened. So do you think there was any – what do you think the result was long-term of that battle? Do you think – you know, did did it change anything? I mean, I'm just wondering kind of what the – the, yeah, the upshot was, effect. yeah, well, yeah. You know, as we as we know from from Doug Shadle's book on the orchestra in the nineteenth century, it didn't much change anything. In fact, there was there was not um, there was not an American conductor of the Philharmonic Society f- for the rest of the century. I can't. I mean, I should know when the first American uh, conductor of of the Philharmonic Society was. Uh, I mean, Theodore Thomas conducted the Philharmonic Society. He was a German immigrant. And he has a reputation of supporting American music, but in fact, he did not. There's, there's, a, there's, so, much, there's so much misinformation about the support or lack of it of American composers and just knowledge about American composers and knowledge of American compositions in the 19th century that it is really hard to say, at least from my point of view, how, what, what impact Bristow and his proselytizing for American composers had on American culture, except for the fact that he was there as a constant voice, a a revered and very well-respected composer for the next 50 years. 
Um, he was, he, he and, and I, I, I can't imagine how he did not have an impact on the development of American composition, um, whether it was orchestral music or other music um, during this time, because he was there as someone who had succeeded at the Europeans' game. He wrote their, their um, forms. He wrote oratorios. He wrote a mass. He wrote five symphonies. He wrote overtures. He wrote piano music and choral music and so on and so forth. And he did it very well to the, to the extent that actually Louis Julien took the symphony back to Europe and played it in in uh, in Europe and to great to great acclaim, but there just wasn't this sense of supporting new music in this country, uh, except if it was written by Europeans. Um, I I can't imagine that it did not have some kind of impact, but but it did not. It was not revolutionary, and the 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 the, the Philharmonic Society. I mean, actually, Bristow actually up and quit the film. Um, he quit for about five concerts, and then uh, the Philharmonic Society, um, I guess they maybe extended a, 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 an olive branch and said, well, come back, because it was a little embarrassing that the most prominent American composer and a really good violinist who had been uh, with the Philharmonic Society since its beginning, which is something I can talk about as well, um, uh, was now out of the orchestra entirely. He'd been on the board. And he finally came back. And I, I think this is not, I don't have any documentation for this, but I think they lured him back by promising to perform his Julian Symphony, which they did in 1856. They performed it and they put it on the shelf and they completely forgot about it for the rest of the year. And, and that was the way the, 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 the musicians of the Philharmonic Society and the, the directors, the conductors and so forth, that's how they dealt with it just it, it, it was it was very difficult to for, for American composers to get to get started. But you know, a number of, many of them did continue. They they you know still they persisted to use that wonderful uh, <laughs> wonderful expression. They persisted, and now we're trying to dig up the, the music they, that that they uh, created and are finding that there's some really good music out there that was ignored by you know oratorio performers or harmonic, I mean, uh, uh, choral societies, opera companies, um, uh, symphonies. I mean, uh, this, the, the Julian Symphony and the, and the, uh, the, his third symphony, the, the, uh, uh, have all both been recorded now, uh, from modern orchestras and their good recordings. And actually people occasionally hear them on the radio. Um, so, uh, I'm hoping that there will be more and, and more of, of this kind of, of rejuvenation of, of the music to get into our, you know, our, our, our sonic ears and our soundscape. Uh, and so that people really understand that America has a really strong musical background in the 19th century that we know nothing about. And that's to our shame that we know nothing about it. Very little about it. Well, I think you can argue that Really, nothing much has changed even up until today. I mean, when Mar Marin Althop is going to leave the Baltimore Symphony soon, and when she does, there will be no American-born conductors of any American orchestras in the United States. And so this sort of idea of, even though, of course, we have many prominent 20th and 21st century composers now you still look at what people program and it's it's it particularly of course as you say from the 19th century but even even in the 20th century it's so dominated by european uh composers so i'm not sure that all that much, i mean things have changed but certainly i feel like you can see that long 
um, tale of history, so to speak, where you start with not really valuing American compositions in the 19th century and, and that sort of that sort of still lives on today where we still look to Europe uh, for so much of our repertoire and, and our leaders. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just repertoire. I mean, when people ask me, see, I'm on a bike ride, so I'm an avid cyclist, you know, I'm asked, ask me, well, what do you do? I teach American music or I have taught, I teach America, I teach music history. I'm a music historian. And I just finished a book about a composer, a 19th century composer. I write, I write about American musical life of the 19th century, and most people haven't a clue. They maybe can name Stephen Foster. Maybe. Um, they can certainly name Stephen Foster if I say, I come from Alabama with my banjo on my knee, because they know the tune, but they don't know anything about him. Um, but as far as knowing anything about our own cultural history, it's pretty slim pickings in terms of what people know. And I think it's a fascinating story that is part of our own culture. And it, anyway, so I, I tend to get on a soapbox and talk about these types of things because I, I think it's important for us as Americans to know what our own cultural and social history is all about. Well, let's try to remedy that a little bit by let me ask you a question about that. So um, it, what can you maybe take the view of Bristow in, you know, 1897. And if you were to be looking back over this long career he had, what sort of, you know, what was the musical culture that he lived through? How did it change and develop over the course of his career, which which really lasted for, you know, what, from the 40s until the late 90s? I mean, he, he, he died sitting in a classroom when he was about to teach. So he did not retire. He worked literally until the moment of his death. So, you know, what, what went on in that period? Tell us about American cultural life. Oh, wow. Another big question. All right. Um, well, it has a lot to do with how Bristow is remembered today. Um, um, what we have in the United States in the 1850s, which is when Bristow is coming of age as a musician, gaining his reputation, Increasing numbers of touring musicians are coming to the United States. Um, there's a brief touring musicians from Europe, of course, um, including orchestras and chamber musicians and lots of singers and lots of opera companies. So there is an burgeoning American musical culture. The cultural life of the country is, is actually quite rich. There's a brief hiatus in the first year of the Civil War when everybody went, Oh my God, what's going to happen? What, what are we going to do? And after that, things kind of settled down and the opera company started touring again and uh, uh, musicians in America toured around. That cut off, uh, the war years cut off much interaction between Europe because musicians didn't want to come over to this country during a war, you know, duh. Um, after the war, in, in the years 65 through about 73, there was an absolute explosion of entertainment because... Um, because people who now were post-war, many of them had traveled for the first time. They were in the military. They went elsewhere. They, they got off their farms. You know, they went out of their own hometowns and they traveled around. And now they went back home and they were ravenous for entertainment. And there was also an economic boom because of uh, the, the post-war expansion of the railroads and increased borrowing. The United States borrowed lots of money from Europe 
both for reconstruction uh, in the South and also for uh, for building the railroads. And people had lots of extra money and extra time, and the middle class was growing, and the cities were expanding, and the West was growing. So cities like Omaha and Denver were going from nothing to huge, large metropoli. Anyway, so so in this uh, in in this culture, we have increasing numbers of Europeans coming over again because now the war was over and we have we have people who are now becoming acquainted with orchestral music and band music and and lots of of, of sheet music is is floating around and so forth so that's kind of popular music um, things start to change in a lot of ways um, they accelerate, I guess. So from the 70s, 80s into the 90s, Americans become more Eurocentric in terms of culture. And um, the, the idea of having to have the imprimatur of Europe in order to succeed in the United States became kind of de rigueur. So we have in the 70s, all of these young women going to Europe to learn how to be prima donnas. And all of these young students of you know piano, Louis Gottschalk, Actually, he went before that. Uh, he went in the 50s to Europe. But but by the 70s and the 80s, you have to go to Europe to get musical training because there weren't really any musical conservatories operating, essentially, in the United States. So they bring back not only the uh, imprint that, okay, we're okay because we succeeded in Europe, but also a taste for European classical standard canonical music. And so, and then all of these other touring performers, the best singers active on the operatic stage in, in Europe, um, the best performers, the, some of the best composers came over to this country uh, visiting America and bringing their music with them. So by the 80s, um, there is this sense that America is just an outpost of Europe. And so it's very, very increasingly Eurocentric. On top of that, in, in the operatic world, there is the idea that opera should no longer be a uh, um, entertainment. It should not be popular culture. It should be uplifting and it should be edifying. And that is the influence of Richard Wagner. Um, the influence he had was on a bunch of the critics in New York and in Chicago and in other major cities who became self-proclaimed Wagnerites. And so they spent their time trying to teach Americans what was good music. And good music was European music uh, in opera. It wasn't Italian opera anymore. It was German opera because that was uplifting and edifying and so on and so forth. So by the, the 90s, there is a fairly large enclave of, of critics who are proselytizing for um, German music, uh, especially in, in, in the opera world, but also Beethoven and, you know, and Roth and, and, you know, some, some French composers, but it's mostly the German, uh, Austro-German heritage. Um, Bristow, meanwhile, is ch chugging along, teaching his music. He, he taught privately. He taught in the New York City school system from 1854 to 1898, um, teaching kids, this music, he's teaching Beethoven, and he's teaching, you know, uh, Handel, oratorio stuff, and so forth. But he's still, at the same time, supporting American composers. He had a fight with the Philharmonic Society at one point 
this is in the 1870s or 80s, I can't remember exactly when it was, when they had hired an American pianist to do solo. And a, a European pianist shows up in New York and they, they told the American pianist, I'm sorry, your contract is null and void. We're going to feature this European pianist. And, and Bristow went ballistic and said, you can't do this. This is not, this is not right. He also was, was in charge of the Harmonic Society and several other choral societies in New York. And he, he, he regularly programmed things like Handel and Mendelssohn, but he also programmed Dudley Buck and other American composers, including his own. In the 90s, he joined the Manuscript Society, the goal of which uh, was, to, was to perform music by American composers. So throughout his entire life, he is programming music by Americans. He's an organist in, in, in a choir directors in churches, so he's playing American music. Um, he's keeping it alive, and he's writing music that he... That, that, that celebrates American nationalism. I mentioned a number of pieces before. By the 90s, by the, I guess maybe the mid, late, eight, late 80s and into the 90s, he is still considered a venerable composer by many in, in America, but he never went to Europe to study. So he doesn't have that stamp of excellence from the Europeans, although he studied with European composers in America, but he never went there. He never felt the need to go there. Um, all of the composers, I'm, I'm broadly generalizing, but a majority of the American, young American composers of the, coming up in the 70s, 80s, they went to Europe. Um, McDowell went to Europe. Chadwick went to Europe. People who, are, who become uh, very popular and important in the 90s. They all went to Europe, and Dudley Buck went to Europe. And he was an organist in New York. We think about Dudley Buck. We know Dudley Buck. He's got a reputation, in part because he had that imprimatur from Europe. Um, he was he was working as an organist in New York the same time the same time Bristow was. People don't know about Bristow; they know about Dudley Buck. So, by the by the say the eighties, late eighties, and into the nineties, Bristow has kind of faded away because he doesn't have that cachet from Europe, and because he's still writing music that people consider old fashioned. They still consider him to be really important and venerable and. Bristow just keeps chugging along, and he's still playing the organ. He's one of the best organists in New York, and he's still writing music and so forth. But he he's not he's not in the forefront anymore, in part because he's not a Wagnerian. He doesn't he's he's a Beethovenian. He he loves Beethoven, and he proselytizes for the early Romantic style. Not he was not. I mean, he was he did write some program music, but he was primarily a composer. I don't know. If, I don't know, maybe may, he, he, in his later symphonies, he utilized programmatic tech, techniques, so he wasn't behind the times. He just had this reputation of being an old-fashioned, uh, fuddy-duddy guy. Um, you know, he's still teaching, he's still playing the organ, he's still composing, but he's not cutting edge anymore. And so the, many of the, um, the early histor histories of, of American music um, were written by Louis Ellison and people people who came up during that period. And, and by that time, Bristol was kind of, a, he was around still, but he was kind of a faded memory in, in the memory of, of, of a lot of people. So he doesn't make it into those early histories very well. Does that help? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals 
Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yes, no, I, that was a great answer. And and it, one of the things I liked about what you were saying is it really shows how, wait, how Bristow was involved in sort of every aspect of musical life in New York. You know, he was charter member of major New York institutions. He can he was conducting orchestras and choral um, uh, groups, plus his church work, plus the education work. I mean, there, it, it, it seemed like there wasn't an aspect of musical life in New York that Bristow wasn't involved in, in a very deep way. It wasn't like he'd be there for a year and he was gone. He was involved with these institutions for, for decades in some cases. Do you have a sense after doing all this work, do you think there was one element of his career that was more important to him, that was sort of his first priority over others? Um, you know, I was really struck by just how incredibly busy the man must have been. <laughs> um, but, well, you know... I, I, On top of the busyness of all the activity, all the productivity, think about what he was doing. He was commuting from Morrisania, which which was Westchester County, which is now the Bronx, down to Lower East Side Manhattan to teach, teach, uh, teach elementary school every day. And I spent a fair amount of time trying to figure out how did he get from point A to point B? And it's, you know, you, you think in a city like New York, you'd be able to find that stuff out. You'd be able to look to, uh, you know, look up, go to the New York Historical Society and find a book on railroads or find a book on, you know, transportation in New York. Oh, my God. He must have spent hours. Um, <laughs> I thought of that, too. Just the commuting time. You know, you wonder if he had a piada terre in, in Manhattan or something. Cause how, he, how, may have, <laughs> he may have, but I couldn't find it. He, he, Again, I mean, the kind of nitty gritty stuff that you try to come up with in order to make a person come alive is, it's almost impossible to find. I mean, I did a lot of time, spent a lot of time looking at directories, city directories to see where, where, you know, he lived, where he was growing up, you know, when the family was in Brooklyn, when it was in lower, you know, on the, on the lower Manhattan and so forth. And it is, uh, it's incredible. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, so, that yeah. does... That does bring up the question about what were what were the documents that you had for his life? Like, you know, you you just spoke of how hard it was to kind of bring him to life as a person. Why why was that? Okay, can I put that question on hold for just a second? Sure. Go back and answer your other question. Oh yes, absolutely. First, I'm so was, sorry. Go ahead. That's all right. <laughs> what what was most important to him? It's hard. It's hard to determine that because the guy was a prolific composer. He composed. 
he started composing at 14. The first piece he wrote that got published was when he was 14 years old. And it was a, da- a piano piece, you know, a dance piece or something. And the last piece he, he wrote was the Niagara Symphony, which he wrote in 1893. And he conducted in 1898. In April 1898, he died in December. So he was active as a composer his entire life. Um, <clears throat> that was important to him. Conducting was important to him because he conducted all those choral groups and he was a church music person. Um, one of the things that kind of goes throughout his entire career, however, his support for American composers, his support for music as, a, as a, an important human activity, and connecting all of that is his interest in educating. He, he, he wrote this autobiographical, I'll get to the autobiographical thing in a minute, but he wrote this autobiographical sketch when he was in, in the 1860s, when he was uh, in his 40s, mid, 30s. Um, and he says in that, he talks in that about how he starts teaching. And when he starts teaching, he is this young hotshot piano player. I mean, the guy must have been a spectacular pianist because I've looked at some of his piano music, which are supposed to be character pieces right that you can you know learn pretty simply oh my god they tend to have stretches of a tenth in the right hand and the melody is in the middle voice and it's a you know it's like I, <laughs> he must have had huge hands um but he, he when he was he started to teach he he would he would teach trying to get people to play that kind of stuff and then at one point he went to a he, he did a concert lots of these pieces that he'd written and he did some other stuff and someone came up to him after, you know, he and it's stuff like Gottschalk's music, which which was popular-ish. He thought of it as popular music. And someone came up to him afterwards and said, well, when are you going to play some popular music? And it was like, I thought I just played a whole concert of popular music. But he realized at that point that, that there was a difference in flavor between um, Carry Me Back to Old Virginia is a, turn that, a tune that he mentions. Um, and... and um, uh, which is not not the bland, not not the James Bland uh, state song emeritus of Virginia, but a, an earlier version of "Carry Me Back to Old Virginia," uh, which and, and it made him think, "Oh my God, there's, there's a difference in flavor here." And and at the same time, he was trying to build up a, 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 a what's it what's it what's the term a, a group of students, a studio of students teaching private piano, and. He, he actually said, I, I, I realized I had a hard time getting students and keeping students. And this other guy over here who's, who's just like a, a hack, he's got more students than he knows what to do with. I realized, I'm speaking for him, that I had to be kind. And I had to lower my expectations, not down to nothing, but make it fun for people. Because music is important. And I want people, even young, you know, young men who are playing pool or whatever, they would be much better if they would spend time learning an instrument. And he says that in, in his autobiographical sketch. Um, so then he changed, completely changed his way of teaching, and he became uh, an understanding uh, taskmaster, but an understanding and kind um, teacher, not just in teaching lessons like organ or piano, but also in teaching elementary school kids. And the results he had from these students, he'd be like, these are like first and second and third graders. And they were doing this incredible concerts at the end of the year that was like some handle aria, handle stuff from oratorios. And it was like, and, and there's, I mean, I re, I've read, I've read descriptions of these, um, 
it, the kids who are dressed up and they're on stage and they're doing it all for their parents and it's the end of the year kind of big concert and at the end of the concert they all stand there very quietly until their parents come up and fetch them <laughs> these are like these are like seven and eight year old kids it's amazing but he had that he was he was a, a, an effective enough teacher and he believed strongly enough in the importance of music that he could do that he could get results so I didn't really answer your question, except that all of it is kind of wrapped up together. I mean, it was, I think it was pretty amazing, God. So, anyway. Well, the the um, accounts you give of his teaching are just amazing. A hundred kids in a room, you know, teaching them the, this really complicated, hard music. I, I can't even really imagine, you know. And, and then to have the idea of the quintessential end of year concert. Boy, that started a long time ago, right? So <laughs> right, that was right. that was really fun. So what sort of, you know, you've talked a lot about newspaper articles that you've read. I mean, is that basically your your um, documentation from Bristow is is his life in the press? Well I that, that majority, the majority of it is, which is, which is a little discouraging because I really wanted to put flesh on the bones of this person that we all sort of know about. We have this, this two-dimensional image. Um, I started out the research building on what I had accumulated for the, for the introduction to the Bristol, the, the, the Julian Symphony. Um, but I had focused on that one basically in the 1850s and earlier because that the symphony dates from 53. I didn't do a whole lot in that introduction with his later career. So I did, I had to go back and do a lot of research. The research I started with was newspaper research. And now that all the, so many newspapers are online and they're digitized and you can, you can um, do searches using Bristow and George Bristow and G F Bristow and G Bristow, you know, and all these various different kinds of, 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 of search terms. And also uh, if I know the Philharmonic Society and, um, and the Harmonic Society, look, look up places, uh, organizations he worked with. And I amassed a huge database full of material about Bristow, um, which included things like all of the benefit concerts he played in, all the gigging things he did, in addition to his regular, regular work as a, as, a, as a performer in an orchestra or a conductor or an orga, organist in a church. He also was doing all, lots and lots of what I call gigging music, musicians, working working for benefit concerts or working for special events and so on and so forth. So a, a lot of information is from there. Um, there is one really useful, no, two really useful print documents that I found. Uh, one of them I found fairly late in the process of writing this book. Um, uh, the, the first one is a, a lecture he gave to MTNA, the Music Teachers National Association, when it met in New York about education. And some of the, some of the details that you mentioned of teaching in a room with a hundred kids and and combining all the third grades in a particular school um, uh, to teach them music and 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 the difficulties of actually teaching music in an environment where it was not generally regarded as important um, all is all from that is all from that lecture which was published by the MTNA. Um, the other one that I kind of stumbled upon is a series of about eight or so interviews that a guy named J. Travis Quigg, who was a journalist in, in 19th century America, um, he wrote for a, a periodical called uh, Music, which is a nice vague name. Uh, he also wrote for another one, I can't remember where, where these interviews are published, um, but there are, I think, eight of them, and I found 
all eight of them, and they are fabulous because they're interviewing Bristow in the 1888, I think is when they were published. They're, so very late in his life. And Quig tends, he, he likes Bristow, and he's asking him all these questions about what it was like to be a young man in New York in the 1840s and doing music and so forth. Um, and so I have a number of, uh, I, I, I've, I've mined that material for quotations from Bristow about his experiences over his lifetime, which was absolutely fabulous to have. The other document that um, I had used in the, um, in the introduction to the symphony is a 30-page autobiographical sketch that he wrote, I think, in the 1860s. So he would have been um, about 35 or so. And it, is, uh, it, is a, it, it, was, it was envisioned as a lecture, um, but I don't think he ever gave it as a lecture. It's, it's just one of these reminiscences that he's talking about growing up in New York City um, and, and his, his early attempts at teaching music. I, I've already alluded to some of that stuff. He describes himself, which helps because it, re- it reveals his kind of droll sense of humor. He, wants, he, was, he wrote a number of, uh, of piano, uh, piano nocturnes. And every time he wrote, actually, it was the other way around. Every time he fell in love with one of his students, he would write a nocturne. And he actually says that, that I can't remember how many times I fell in love, but I wrote eight or ten nocturnes, so it must have been that many times. <clears throat> and some of these nocturnes are the ones that are really so difficult to play. But he, he describes himself as uh, um, not particularly good looking, and and um, he, he was getting ready to go to, a, to perform in a concert, and he said that it was... It was, he was okay looking, but there wasn't enough hair up where it's supposed to grow. And the barber made it look, so he's doing premature balding, I guess. Um, uh, so, so, I mean, reading that kind of thing, I'm, I'm, I'm like, oh, this guy's a real person. He's making, you know, it, it's, it's, it's coming to life in a way. Um, he also describes in, in a fair amount of detail what it was like to be the prodigy son of an ambitious New York, um, uh, American, New York composer and performer, a guy, his, his father, William Bristow, who, who wanted to make him into this great musician. Um, William Bristow was actually quite a good clarinetist um, and a teacher and an organist, so we don't know a whole lot about him, but um, he wanted his son to be the next, I don't know, Mozart. I mean, he named him George Friedrich Bristow. Right, and 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 in the um, in the in this this uh, uh, autobiographical sketch, which I use quite a lot, he 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 introduces he writes it all in the third person, and he introduces himself as a member of the Apollo family, and his name. Let me see if I can pull this up. Uh, his name in this Apollo family is a takeoff on his own name. Let's see, I have a transcript of this thing. Maybe I do, um, but it's something like uh, George Ludwig Wolfgang, <laughs> whatever. Here I've got the first page of this thing. Um, um, Bristow. Um, okay, his name was okay. Uh, our hero of our lecture is of the Apollo family. That is, he had a father whose name was Apollo, and who conse- and consequently he, the hero, inherited that name. He was a very good musician. He played on the organ, the clarinet, the piano, and so forth. I was an organist in a church. The man composed much sacred music. His greatest hope 
was that he might have a son who should also become a musician and a great one. So indeed, his name was Handel, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Apollo. Wow. That's a lot to live up to. Jeez. Yes. So, so, so I have those documents um, and that, that plus all the information that I have from reviews, from commentary, from little sides in newspaper that say, oh, George Bristow is in town um, uh, playing the organ. You know, it's the, you know, the greatest, the greatest composer in America kind of thing. Those kind of comments that are just thrown off regularly by commentators. They're not trying to, you know, make a point or anything. They're just, you know, identifying him. The other things that I found, I found a number of photographs of him that are in the New York Public Library that were given to the New York Public Library uh, in 2010 um, by um, a, a woman on Long Island who uh, was the, get this, the niece of Bristow's granddaughter, who actually was the source of that autobiographical document as well. I wrote to her when I was when I was um, working on the, the, the Bristow Symphony, and <clears throat> she wrote me a very, a very nice letter. But she had a, 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 like a, 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 an accordion folder full of photographs and stuff that um, belong with the Bristow collection in New York. The, the majority of Bristow's music is at the New York Public Library in the Performing Arts Library. And it had been given, been given to the New York Public Library by her mother, who was Bristow's granddaughter. No, her aunt, who was Bristow's granddaughter. Um, um, and this, this, these other letters um, stayed. Uh, stayed with her, and in 2010, uh, George Bosiewicz of the New York Public Library made another attempt to get them and, and secured them for the New York Public Library. And they're 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 a very small cache of letters, but they're wonderful because they provide some you know real life information about this man. There are photographs. <clears throat> there are there are letters that people who knew George Bristow wrote to his wife, his widow after he died and they're very candid and talk about him as a great neighbor and Morrisania and he was the kindest man and blah 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 and there are three letters um that he wrote to his daughter who lived uh who I don't know where she lived she was in New York and she was in her 30s was married had a son who she named George and these letters which he's writing from Orient New York which is out on Long Island they had a summer home out there three different letters he wrote to her and they're just, they're chatty and they're, they're full of like, how are you doing? How's, how's your, how's your husband? How's your cat? You know, how's whiskers? How's the little man? You know, and he's clearly a doting grandfather, but um, I, I'm pretty sure that she saved these letters because in the last one that we have, which she again wrote from Orient, he's bragging about catching this like 10 pound bluefish off the Orient Point dock and ha 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 your husband whatever his name is William William and you know he'll be jealous when he hears this kind of stuff um but he he gets a little bit pensive toward the end and he said you know here it is it's already uh almost in September Labor Day well, it wasn't Labor Day but uh Thanksgiving will be around the corner and Christmas is coming and then the first you know first of January etc cetera, etc cetera, as they tend to do in the 19th century you know with ampersand 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 well he never made it to Thanksgiving. He never made it to Christmas or to to his birthday, which is on the nineteenth of December, because he died in early December um, of a heart attack. Um, and so I'm I'm thinking that probably his granddaughter, his daughter, uh, uh, who had to whom these letters were addressed, kept them because they were so close to to the time of his death. But for me, as a scholar, 
as I say in the book, these are the types of things you don't usually include in a biography, a scholarly biography, but they were a, a little snippet of who the man was. In fact, when I first read these letters, I was sitting in the New York Public Library and I laughed out loud because he starts out one letter saying, well, it's, you know, it's really hard when there's, when, there's, when there's nothing to say. It's really hard to say it. It's been boring here. And, you know, the mosquitoes are horrible. And I'm going, yeah, this guy was a real person. So anyway, so I have in, in the conclusion, I have some quotations from those letters. But that's, that's basically it. It's piecing things together from, you know, dis, from disparate sources and, and reading between the lines and reading uh, obituaries that don't, some of them don't talk about. You know, his the greatest oratorio in American history and his symphonies and so forth, but talk about him as a teacher and what the impact was he had on generations of New York young young boys and girls. Um, and they talk about him as a neighbor, and, not, 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 the, uh, not, the, not the obituaries, but they talk about him as being a kind and a caring person who was supportive and who never met somebody whose music he couldn't support, you know, that type of thing. And it's just just little, a few sentences here and there, picked up from all this all this material that I, I amassed, helped me to create this real person. So you can tell me, was I successful? Did yes. I no, I thought you did a good job. I mean, I, I it was pretty clear that you didn't have a lot of personal documents, but you still managed to, as you do in all your books, right? You are so great at finding, uh, you know, a million one-liners. <laughs> And finding a way to put that all together to create sort of a whole you uh, you know if if our listeners listen to read your other books I mean in some in some ways you do that for everyone that you write about like you know in opera for the people for instance you have so many characters that you've had to do the same thing with because that is a problem with all American music really is that we don't have this large cache of biographical details from almost anyone in 19th century American music. And um, so thank God for newspaper databases, honestly, because yeah. it certainly makes that job a lot easier uh, than it was when, when you had to hand, hand crank the microfilm <laughs> to, <laughs> to find it. So, yeah, um, yeah. so as we come to the end of this, perhaps I can have one more question about Bristow before we, we wrap up our interview. Um, you've talked about his music a fair amount to sort of mention different pieces and talked about how he had this reputation as a great American composer, but can you maybe, and in your book, you talk about a lot of individual pieces and really try to give a flavor of what kind of composer he was and what his pieces were like. Obviously, we can't go through all of that. So can you maybe pick one piece that you think is a good representative of Bristow as a composer and just sort of tell us about his style and, and what kind of, you know, what was distinctive or important about his music? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll do um, the symphony I'm most familiar with, which is the second symphony, the Julian Symphony. Um, he, he was a young man when he wrote this piece, um, uh, was commissioned, as I mentioned, he was about 25, about 20, maybe less than that. He was 53. He was born, <clears throat> born in 1825. So we math. Anyway, he was, he was young. Um, and, and he, he, it was written in the style of early romantic period composers. Okay. Now I should say before I describe this, I should say that as he, as he matured, over the course of the 19th century, his music became more like mid-century uh, European composers and late-century European composers. Uh, but in this particular piece, 
he wrote a symphony that is that is um, it's absolute music. I I tried to I try to find a way. Okay, it's in four movements. Um, there is there's a rondo, a spectacular, wonderful, dancey rondo, which is actually a scherzo. So it's actually I mean, and, and actually, it's not even a scherzo. I said rondo, I meant scherzo. It's not really. I mean, it is a scherzo. But unlike being a joke, which is what scherzo means, and that's what Beethoven wrote, and that, that had replaced the, the minuet, of course. But there's a dance, a dance movement in the in the symphony, and he wrote a polka. Um, and 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 critics, there's a couple of critics who just went excoriating, and they said, "Polka? What the heck, what the what the X is is this polka stuff? You know, a minuet is a dignified dance." And I'm, and I'm thinking. He was writing something that appealed to Americans. Americans all danced the polka. It was a very popular style of dance, um, and everybody knew it. And it's what it went his way within the absolute music style to put a stamp of America on on this symphony. So he's making it American because he's using a, a popular dance in America. I mean, it's not it doesn't originate in America. Um, he wrote uh, the, the slow movement is a very uh, very long. Um, Adagio with with it's a theme and variations essentially, and then the final movement is a, is like a rondo uh, sonata, like a form with a with a long epilogue, and the epilogue sounds like an anthem, a wind anthem, and I take it as an homage to Julien, who had actually commissioned this work, um, because Julien did lots of, I mean, he came from France, and there was this, this tradition of of French anthems and so forth. I, I, I moved heaven and hell to try and find the origin for the tune. And I talked to all sorts of people, couldn't find anything. So it's, it, maybe he made up the tune um, for, for the anthem, the coda for this, comp- this composition. Um, one of the things that I, that, I, that I need to point out is when I was, before I started working on the Julian Symphony, um, I, was, I, I had written a book on opera in America in the antebellum period. And I was, I was in the Library of Congress on my sabbatical right after I'd gotten tenure and had written that book, and which was my dissertation, and so on and so forth. And um, and Wayne Shirley, this walking encyclopedia of American music, who was uh, one of the librarians at the Library of Congress, walked up to me one day, and he had in his hand this 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 bound volume, long, like a you know, like. 15 inches long and eight inches high of a photostatic copy of Bristol's Julian Symphony. And he said to me, you know that I am on the committee on the publication of America, American music. We're creating this multi-volume edition of American music called music of the United States of America. Being very subtle, um, uh, a, a title. And we need another 19th century symphony. And it should be, this symphony by Bristow, and you should be the editor. And I'm going, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm in the middle of something else, but I took it, okay? I took it and I took it home. I mean, this is a, this is a document from the Library of Congress. He says, take it home. All right. I walk out the door with this document. Um, and, and it wasn't it wasn't cataloged. Uh, there's a story behind that, but I won't get into. Um, and I brought it home and I put it on my shelf. Okay, so I'm here working on this other book, which actually became Opera for the People. I mean, that, that was the gestation for that was like 20 years. Um, but I made the mistake of listening to the only recording of the Julian Symphony, which was done in the 1960s as part of this 
the Society for the Preservation of American Music, or SPAM, recording series. Um, and Louis Kruger, who's a, 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 a conductor in Europe, uh, in, in Britain, uh, pulled, uh, embarked on this project, and he, he recorded a number of the Bristow symphonies. One of them was, was the second. Not a good recording, but he wrote earworms, and I couldn't get them out of my head. You know, I'd be out working in the garden, and I'd what's it, what's going on in my, what, what am I, oh, that's the second movement of the Bristow Symphony. That went on for several years, and I finally agreed to do it. Anyway, the guy knew how to write melodies, and the melodies, and he played with the melodies, and he developed the melodies in a really quite masterful way. He is particularly skillful at writing for winds, and he wrote, he wrote, I mean, especially in like the, in, in the, the, the polka, there's wonderful quartet for, for winds. And, so, and he does this in a lot of his other pieces as well. Um, the other thing that is really interesting about the Bristow Second Symphony, the Julian Symphony, is that he wrote a major part for trombone. Okay, there aren't very many major parts for trombones in 19th century symphonic music. There were very, very few by the time Bristow wrote this. He was familiar with, with Schumann's symphonies. He was familiar with Schubert, but barely, because he was he played these things as 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 in the Philharmonic Society Orchestra. Um, he wrote a masterful uh, solos throughout. I think all of the movements except for the polka have solos for trombone, and the, the way he plays with them. One of them, one he introduces the trombone as a discant to the main theme of the piece, and later. It's the main theme, and so forth. It's uh, the, the the orchestral writing is, is really quite skillful, absolutely worthy of, of people listening to this and knowing it. And the other symphony that he that has been recorded is the um, is the third symphony. The Albany Orchestra did a, did a recording of this a number of years ago. Um, I'm hoping that someday someone will record the fourth symphony, which is the uh, the Arcadian Symphony, which is a nationalistic programmatic sort of symphony. Um, the Niagara Symphony is would be a, would be a piece of work because it's full. It's it is. I mean, he was a Beethovenian, so he wrote a choral symphony with full chorus and multi movements, three movements, and then the movements are anyway. He knew Beethoven's work, and and this was this was his final his final piece. Um, his music is worth listening to. I, I I think that we're going to get a recording, at least a part of the the Mass in C, which is also very much indebted to the Mississolemnus. Um, because uh, a, a scholar who, who works at, at Case Western, I think it's a Case Western, um, um, a, a school in Cleveland, in any case, um, who wrote a dissertation on the Madison Seat, was supposed to do a, a, a performance of it last spring with his choir. And of course, it got shut down because of the pandemic. But I'm hoping that eventually we'll get a recording of that. There is a recording of, the, of, the, of, of Daniel, the oratorio, which was considered by many American critics to be the, at, at that time the best American oratorio, and, and and that's made it into the oratorio books by you know major scholars of oratorio who say yeah this is a, this is a gem. So there are if you like choral music there there there's a recording of that very good recording of that. Um, did that answer your question? Yes, no, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, well, as that answer actually indicates, you always have a million projects going on. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and they're sort of percolating along. So what are you working on right now? Well, one of the things that I've wanted to do for a while is, I mean, I have, for, my, for my entire career, I've been very interested in making American musical culture known just to regular Americans. 
we call it public musicology, as you know. And when I was writing the opera for the People book, it was uh, I, I had a, I was lucky enough to have a fellowship, a year long fellowship at the uh, National Humanities Center in uh, in North Carolina, and we fellows would sit around at lunch and talk about this and that and the other. And there was a lot of discussion at that time about how you know we live in the like this this ivy colored towers, right, the academy and so forth, and we're so d divorced from regular people, um, we really need to break that down. There's been a lot of discussion about that in the academy for years, and I thought to myself, well, some of the stories I'm telling in this book are really very, they would be very appealing to a lot of people, and maybe I should make this book into a trade press book, a book that's, that's directed at the, at the popular, you know, general audience. Well, you can't use footnotes in those kinds of books. We can't use very many of them. And um, as I've said to you before, I felt that what I was discovering about opera, English language opera in America in the period 1860 to 1900 was filling in such a huge gap in our understanding of American musical culture that I really felt that this needed to be an, ac an academic book because people needed to know about it. Scholars needed to know about it. But my, my, um, my compromise with myself was that I would subsequently take some of these chapters and make them into trade press books, general, general readership books. And so um, after I finished the Bristol book last summer, um, which I wrote during my first um, year of retirement, hooray. <laughs> uh, it's amazing what you can do when you're not grading papers. Um, uh, uh, I, I kind of put off doing academic stuff, long-term academic stuff for a while, and I've just finished writing a prospectus to turn the chapter on Emma Abbott, who was known as America's prima donna, and was this young woman who grew up in Peoria, Illinois, and became this uh, icon. I mean, she 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 grew up as this penniless prairie singer uh, from Peoria, and uh, I love the alliteration. And she died at the age of forty-one as a as a millionaire. She sold American, she sold English translations of continental opera to the American public as American popular entertainment. And has a fascinating story, and and there's no, of course never been anything written about her except for my chapter, and so on. I, I've just written the prospectus to try and sell this uh, book to a trade press publisher uh, and write a biography of her. So that's next. Well, I hope that comes out because um, you know she was she's an amazing figure and such a. I don't know, such a character. So I would love to, to learn more about her for sure. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Kitty. Um, my name is Kristen Turner, and I've been talking to Catherine Preston about her biography of George Frederick Bristow, published by University of Illinois Press in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Kitty. Thank you for having me. It's been Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.